Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. The podcast where we're in a room that Scotch is in, and also we're Michael and Ethan. That's um, correct. I wasn't reading the script. I didn't have the script up, so I just ad-libbed that. But I think it went pretty it. well. I Well, I didn't mean it, because it went pretty well. Yeah, you got it fine. Yeah, thank you. No. Um, so. I'm Ethan Lilienthal, and this is Michael Bartlett. So, my wife already today... <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to tell you this whole conversation. Oh, good. It was when, like, I wasn't exactly sure when you were going to get here, so I was, I was like, when is Michael going to get here? And I forget what Karen said, but whatever it was in response to it, I said, I'm not a 14-year-old girl waiting for my date. <laughs> to which my wife responded, well, you're not one of those things. <laughs> So, like, the fact that you've just sort of <laughs> done this, this, you know, cross, uh, uh, cross identity thing, which I did possibly because of that conversation imagine, like, on the back of a school notebook with, like, a big heart. <laughs> Michael Bartlett. Anyway, you've gotten us off on an extremely bad foot. Just a real bad foot. Um, oh, man. So, here we are, gentle listener, and if you haven't stopped listening now, it gets better, I promise. <laughs> yeah. um, Only always ever. Yes. you just really impatient for that scotch, huh? I am. Just My glass to... is empty. Do you see this? I this do. Is that, is a, that is a problem and a crime, and it doesn't look right to me. So, gentle listener, as you hear the dulcet tones of Michael pouring, um... You can probably tell just from the uh, the noise of it that we are drinking Glen Fodry. Uh Ashel on or I my Scots Gaelic pronunciation is way out of practice, but it's something like that. It is a Speyside single malt Scotch whiskey, oak aged, twelve years, non chill filtered, limited release. Ashel on or is Scottish Gaelic for the color of gold. And we we're drinking it. Yep. So we are also reading Gerald Murnane's The Plains. And we're talking about that. And yep. with that, we as all podcasts must be, we are a very strict podcast. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of rules. Yep. So many that we don't trust ourselves to keep track. So we're going to have my wife come in and read the rules. Karen, please come in and read the rules. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Mm -hmm. Now, to... Okay, so I guess we better clink glasses. Yep. Uh, here's mud in your eye. Slancha. this uh, episode specifically, Mm -hmm. Um, and I would like to invite my wife back into the room, 
So, Michael, can you take down the no girls sign on our oh, clubhouse door? On. I love that sign. Wife! Wife! Please become present. Please become actual and not just possible. Oh, man. Uh, hello. hello, wife. We, we just met you because you read the rules. Yes. You were just here, and then you left, and then you came back. I, I do that. Uh-huh. Uh, you can kind of carefully scoot closer to the mic if you like. Yes. Do you want some scotch? No. You just lost. Oh, I did. <laughs> uh, all right, well, I had a big old plan for if you lost, but here oh, we are, I guess. Snap. Um, all right, well, to not interrupt the flow of this extremely tight, tightly scheduled show. Oh, I thought you were talking about um, my shirt. Extremely tight shirt <laughs> that has the schedule for our show on it. Uh, I'm going to move that we postpone that punishment slightly. Very small Second. <laughs> what? The, the shirt also has very small font. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, second, the motion passes. Um, the wife adding to my joke is also valid, <laughs> even though I missed it. So what I would just like to do, um, we touched briefly on my favorite passage in this book. Okay. Probably, I'm going to say my favorite passage in this book. Not probably? You're not going to hedge on that? I am going to hedge, but only in the spirit of the book. Got it. Uh, which is, as we talked about last episode, when the narrator of the book... Um, mm -hmm. finally gains admittance to the inner sanctum of the landowners who he is hoping will subsidize his weird film project. <laughs> um, and, Michael, you you uh, uh, said a thing that gave me this idea last episode. You said oh, okay. that it basically turns into a play script. Yes. Um, so I just thought, and I don't want to do the whole passage because it will take way too long and probably violate copyright, but... Um, I just was wondering if we could do just a little bit of this so-called play script. Goody. So I'm going to say you start out with first landowner. Karen, you be second landowner when we get there. Okay. I'll be third landowner. There are four, five, and six, and I think we can just go in. We can do other voices if we want, but we can just go in the same order. So four, right. five, six. Crikey, this sounds like a All right, good no. idea. Also, I was <laughs> going to say I don't think we need to try our Australian accents because well, I think knife. I think yours is the best of us in this room, and it's not very good. <laughs> That's a knife. But I am nothing if not a generous director who will let you take your roles as you wish. So, do what you Let's want. put these patties on a bobby. Just don't ruin the <laughs> podcast. These what now? <laughs> Alright. And action. Wait, are we starting from the front? Yes, yeah, sorry. Page 61, Bob. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> Our own generation too extreme when they define the ideal complexion for a woman. No one wants his wife or daughter brown from the sun, but I am, per am I perverse if I prefer a pallor that's not quite flawless? I'll speak frankly. All my life, I've dreamed of a certain arrangement of... I refuse to use that banal word, freckles. Their color must be a delicate gold, and I want to come across them in what seems an appropriate sight. They lie far apart, but I can see them as a constellation if I wish. Gold on sheer white. Bustards, of course, and plains wanderers, and painted quail and stubble quail and the brown songlark, with that odd call it makes, and I ask myself... With our cairns of stones on every hillside and plaques beside the roads, and inscriptions still preserved on tree trunks, but we forget that most of these men shouldn't be called plainsmen. This obsession with explorers. Please don't misunderstand me, it's a worthy task we've undertaken. But that vision of the plains we're all looking for, let's remember that the first explorers may not have been expecting plains, and many of them went back to their seaports afterwards. Certainly they boasted of what they had discovered, but the man I want to study is the one who came inland to verify that the plains were just as he'd hoped for, that vision we're all looking for. I remove my jacket and roll a, sh my shirt, a shirt sleeve above my elbow, staring at the skin of my forearm. I have to admit that after all these years, I know so little about my own skin. We're all plainsmen, always claiming that everything in sight is a landmark of something beyond it. But do we know what our own bodies are leading us towards? 
If I made maps of all your skins, I mean, of course, projections like Mercator's, if I showed them all to you, would you recognize your own? I might even point out to you marks like a, a tiny scattered towns or clumps of timber on plains you'd never thought of. But what could you tell me about those places? I'm speaking of my... Wait. That's me. Again. Different me. I'm speaking of my ideal woman, remember? The only woman that any of us speak about. Of course they can fly, and there are trees enough on the plains, but they nest on the ground, and the bustard doesn't even make a nest, just a scrape or a little hollow in the dry soil. I'm not interested in arguments about evolution or instincts or that nonsense. All science is purely descriptive. What concerns me is the why of it. Why do some birds hide in the ground while their enemies threaten them? It must be a sign of something. The next time you see a bustard nest, ask yourself why. Lie down and try to hide in the plain and see what happens. <laughs> Differently. Surely we've neglected the first settlers, the men who stayed in the land they explored. But even after years on the plains, they might have remembered another sort of land, or the land they'd hoped to find, if only the plains hadn't seemed to go on forever. I'm trying to remember those lines from A Parasol at Noon, a neglected masterpiece, one of the greatest romantic poems to come out of the plains. That scene where the plainsman sees a girl from a distance with all the paddocks swimming in, a, in heat haze, and don't bother to raise the old objection that the poetry of that era turned us into parodies of ourselves fixed in the posture of men forever looking into the distance. That scene is the only scene, as I recall the poem, two hundred stanzas on a woman seen from a distance. Though, of course, she's hardly mentioned. It's the strange twilight around her that matters. The other atmosphere under the parasol. And as he walks slowly towards her, he sees this aura, this globe of luminous air under the parasol, which was silk, of course, and a pale yellow or, or green and translucent. He never quite distinguishes her features in the glow, and he right. speaks... Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm glad we got the, the first part of that passage, but <laughs> we were running long. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, guest star. You're welcome. My 15 minutes of fame right here. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our three listeners do know that you're a star now. <laughs> so, I was mostly really just an actual experiment I wanted sure. to do. Um, partly to see, because you were talking about how confusing that passage was yes. last time. Um, and we can get into that, because I do think there's room to explore just in that little mm -hmm. statement. But I wanted to see... Partly, if it made somewhat more sense um, mm -hmm. out loud, because certain of, especially, actually, Beckett is is um, a good example here, and even like Eugene Ionesco, when you read their plays, a lot of times they seem very fragmented, especially Ionesco. Sure. Um, but when you have actors actually acting mm -hmm. the 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 scenes and the the lines even just having different voices attached to them yeah and and having them you know that experience of hearing them vocally rather than just reading them um sometimes an abs uh, especially like an absurdist playwright like Beckett or Ionesco it comes together in a certain way that it simply doesn't yes. written mm -hmm. and of course that's you know partly going to be due to an author who knows the difference between an oral medium and a, a print medium. Yep. Um, but I just wanted to see how it flowed actually out loud. Because this is, you know, you get you get any six people, especially, you know, thinkers, people who are intellectual at all, in a room, and um, whether they're having the same conversation or not, you'll get fragmenting, right? Yep. Or if you if you wrote the conversation down, it would seem very fragmented. And I was wondering how well that scene flowed together sure uh, again just just uh said out loud the way that what what it was aping more like yeah, yeah, what it was yeah. aping so what did you think well i think it, it it did help a little bit to clarify some things that were going on yeah. at the same time it does still seem very fragmented like there are several yeah. conversations going on here at once yeah. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, kind of I, smashing things together. I think if I um, were producing it either as a play or even, like, doing, like, an audiobook version of it, mm. I would want to experiment somewhat with blending and sort of yeah. having... 
some of these conversations happen almost on top of each other, like right. as much on top of each other as you can get away with. Right, without it becoming just gibberish. boring and gibberish yeah. and a headache, yep. Um, yeah, I was going to say something else about that, but I forgot what it was. Sure. Well, what what I got out of it ultimately here is just the idea, which which was kind of there in the first place, this just kind of solidified it a little bit more, that all these landowners in there have their own particular obsessions. Yeah. And they are just stuck in those things, and that's what occupies them. That's what yeah. masters them. Yeah. So you've got the one who is obsessed with talking about these birds, and another one that is talking about women, and another that's talking about skin. I will weirdly. say, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. <laughs> um, it's I don't I don't know if that one's name was Jeffrey Dahmer, but. <laughs> Sure seems Imagine like I took your skin off of you and then projected <laughs> it onto a screen and called it a map. <laughs> but also, don't call the cops, please. <laughs> um, so when I originally read that passage, I obviously cottoned on to what was going on pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did figure out that there there are conversations happening. There are yep. these some of these landowners are talking to some of the other landowners. Yep. And you get some of the actual dialogue, some of the actual response to others. Toward the end of uh, uh, our little dramatic reading there, um, you get, I think was the first time, which I think we were three or four pages in, um, before the statement of one landowner was directly responded to by the next landowner quoted. But um, I do Mm -hmm. remember, you know, mapping out mentally just, okay, so Landowner 2 is talking to Landowner 5, and Landowner, you know, 1, 3, and 6 are having the same conversation. And that is in there. You just have to um, read a little bit non-linearly to be willing to go back and figure out, okay, who's who does it make the most sense that this guy's, you know, respond? It demands a little work from the reader to figure that out a little bit. Which I think A is intentional. Yep. And B is not the same as, like, an Ionesco and the Bald Soprano just almost writing gibberish and forcing you to put meaning onto it. Uh-huh. But I think there's more going on than that. I'm just not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, certainly what Murnane has chosen to do is take, you know, what in a normal, even a play script or or a novel would be sort of three separate conversations that would be perfectly perfectly coherent in as much as people who have conversations about, like, making your skin into a map can be. Um, mm-hmm. I, it, he's sort of taking three different conversations like that and just sort of scattering them among each other. Mm-hmm. So there is still some set of coherent conversations yes. going on. And I feel like I have a question about that, but I don't know what the question is. Okay. I guess, like, yeah, like, what else is going on here? Uh, or why would Murnane choose to well, do this this way? One thing that occurs to me is this is this is the first moment that the narrator is permitted into this inner sanctum. This right holy of holies here where all the landowners are meeting that's exclusive and you're only allowed in there when you're called in so i know you're answering the question i just asked yep but you said holy of holies and it like gave me a slight epiphany just about the first i mean we're at page whatever six yeah it's like 61 when this dialogue starts starts, yep and then it's like the first section is like a hundred pages long. Yep. And it just gave me an epiphany that this really is sort of ritualized, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Like absolutely it's ritualized. The the idea that because he, he goes you're right, he goes from the complete outer sanctum, you know, yep. through progressive stages of like becoming holier. I wanna say that in his like getting admittance into this inner sanctum, there's even a conversation he has with some sort of gatekeeper type that I want to say you could almost read as like a purification, sure, right, or at least a vetting. You know, some of this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think it's much of a stretch, right? Yeah, no, it, I don't, I don't think it is at all, and it kind of leads to part of that, or connects to part of that 
point I was making earlier about how hard it is to actually comprehend how this as something real. Yeah. It seems so fantastic. It seems like a fantasy sort of setting with this very foreign idea of this ritualized thing. Yeah. It's, It's establishing things that are holy that I wouldn't naturally think of as holy. Right. Or set apart. And it's creating that sort of thing for me. Right. And But, like, part of that, too, I think, with this whole ritualized idea, this narrator, who we've established is very solipsistic, right. kind of self-absorbed, um, it, it comes into this place where he's confronting all sorts of other obsessions. Yeah. And he needs to figure out which god he's going to serve. That's, yeah, that's a fascinating... Like, he's he's here admitted into the Pantheon, sure. <laughs> and one of these, these literally, gods, these landowners, is going literally to... Literally the Pantheon. Yes. <laughs> all of the gods. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, which is, it's very similar. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's again, very, uh, very pertinent in the sense that, like, now I... So we had a conversation before you were... Well, I know you said you were recording since you walked into this apartment, but (laughs) before any of the official recordings, we were having this conversation about how I had recently watched the movie The Rules of the Game and Mm -hmm, figured out mm -hmm. that every main major character in that movie is mapped onto one of the Greek gods. Um, So maybe that's why I'm thinking of this, but now I kind of want to reread this, my favorite passage specifically, and see if there's some pan- some actual pantheon, like whether it's sure. the Greek gods or the Norse gods. You know what? It could even be aboriginal in some way. See, like, I'm... they don't have a strict sort of pantheon sort of thing. It's a little more... I was going to say, like, I'm very cautious. and stuff. Yeah. But, like, just because he's so Australian, I wouldn't well... be surprised if he took some inspiration from that. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm very cautious about that. A, simply because I don't know very much about Australian well, Aboriginal, you know, religion and, and sure. um, mythology. But also because this is very much, as much as it's an an immigrant novel and an invader novel, sure. it's very European in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because if you trace, like, if you trace the heritage of gods almost... Um, so obviously Australian settlement comes from largely the English. Um, there's a good deal of Irish, um, influence there too, but it's driven by the English, right? Like the, um, the, you know, most of the Irish who were there, at least originally came, were literal prisoners, right? Like, so you could almost trace Australian settlement back to the British, but the British don't historically have a pantheon at least that has come down to us yeah right like they're you know the any any documentary you read or you watch about um tolkien or the lord of the rings will mention the fact that tolkien wanted to create a british mythology because there kind of wasn't one sure um and you can go back to like beowulf and we do know that you know, there were all these pagan kings even into the Dark Ages in sure. in England. But, like, as far as anything that's come down to us, even Beowulf is heavily Norse, right? Um, so it's like, where do you get your gods from? Are they Norse? Are they Greek? You know, and it, it makes me wonder if there's a sort of, like, fatherlessness or parentlessness that comes into this very sort of secularly mapped image of a set of of patron gods in this this supposedly fantasy australia yeah you know what's occurring to me with this too as we talk about this like this whole idea of them being kind of a pantheon here these landowners didn't really occur until we started having this conversation no and that's that's what i was saying parallel to rules of the game i want to see if they're yeah mapped onto like yeah and I, I don't know if they are i don't know if i i don't know if I, it they matters either yeah i was gonna say they certainly don't need to be. no but like something that occurs to me here is so he comes in he is looking for a patron for his particular art yes and with that as as soon as they start talking the 
the first reaction I had when I read this in the first place, and it hasn't gone away now, is that the conversation of the landowners, or the conversations, yeah. are extremely disappointing. Uh-huh. In just how mundane and self-absorbed they all are. Sure. Which strikes me that he can't find the god he's looking for in all of this, and there are six primary landowners until we get to the seventh, who doesn't oh, come until right. about ten pages later. Yeah. Uh, Almost as like this. the punchline or the, the yep. button of this, yep. this scene. And the... After... All these landowners are talking amongst themselves. Yes. Kind of ignoring the narrator. Yeah. Up until this point. And then it comes to, on page 75, the seventh landowner, uh, the stage direction. He swings his legs over the side of the stretcher, strides to the bar, and pours himself a whiskey then begins talking as though he has missed none of the conversation so far, which there the narrator has said conversation. Yeah. Singular. I was going to... So I, far. That that was a, an idea you triggered when you were saying conversation. Conversations is the idea that this all is one conversation. Yep. Which there which it's kind of established that it is one. Yeah. Um, which does <sighs> completely change everything. Right. If you think about it yep. that way. And so what he says, the seventh... Uh, landowner, a man can know his place and yet never try to reach it. But what does our petitioner think? He addresses the narrator. Yeah, yeah. He's the first one to address the narrator. He's ultimately, I think, right? He's the one who ultimately um, takes him on. Sure. Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Um, because everybody else leaves. He stays there lying on a stretcher, gets up, and doesn't actually say, I want your art in my place. It's more like you should come and learn how you're wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because part of the reason that that this idea of a pantheon uh, struck me is the fact that you know this is a this is a very specifically I want to say Greek kind of a thing where you have someone who has a certain like set of skills who wants a patron, and I want to say that in Greek society people like that would choose one of the gods. They would sort of, yes. you know, commit mm -hmm. themselves to one of the gods. Pick so like one. Yeah. Which is, is even today um, kind of a Hindu approach, too. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you serve one god, which it's a little... It makes sense with their pantheon because they've got millions of gods. You right. pick one. Yeah, you pick one and then you you sort of do your sacrifices and your prayers to that god. Yep. Hopefully they reward you and hopefully it's sort of a a match between who this god is, like what they're a god yep. of, and the, the things you want to accomplish with their help. Um, which, like, I don't know, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think it's much of one. You could even map onto, like, a medieval Catholic thing where you sure. have you patron pick a saint. saints. Yep. Yeah, and you say, you know, certain people... Um, some of them would be monks or or nuns or priests, but some well, of them would just the be Well, even the orders of secular... monasteries, you know, you've got yeah. the Franciscans, you've yeah. got the Augustinians, you've got but the even Dominicans, like, all those... You know, certain writers would dedicate their yep. works to yep. certain saints, yep. um, even into this, well, almost this century, not quite... Um, Chris Farley uh, carried around a card with the patron saint of clowns. Um, sure. Know, it's... it's uh, uh, it's one of those ideas that feels very ancient and foreign, but actually is in our culture sure. um, in ways that might surprise a person. Absolutely. Um, and well, that's, that's, what, that's what this reminds me of, except that the idea that, oh, this is a reference to the Greek gods would violate everything that these Absolutely. men are Absolutely. about, right? But, like, here's another way this, this fits into our culture to an extent. It's yeah. just the idea that we love... <laughs> being categorized right think oh. of pottermore okay <laughs> sort yourself into a house we love figuring out what house at hogwarts we belong in right you know and personality tests too right fitting into a personality wait did you just watch the same college humor video that i did i don't know that Where i did they do all of this okay it was literally one it was one of those ones that just like facebook was like, you've watched these three other videos, for some reason we think you'll like this one. And there's a college humor video, literally, that went through the whole, you know, it's them just messing around in the office, and uh, uh, 
the, they go, th- the first person is like, oh, you know, self-help motivational speakers are dumb. They just use keywords to try to get you. Not like this other thing. And it leads into, yeah, how, you know, authors create just random categories for people. Sure. And like, um, personality, yeah. personality systems. Which, like, the, yeah, personality systems in, in a lot of cases, I think, would fit into this quite well. This, this whole idea that, and I'm not going to discredit the whole psychological field. Um, <laughs> that's not my aim here. Uh, <laughs> Take note. If it happens, it happens. No. <laughs> but the, no, the if idea. If we create a revolution, we didn't mean to. <laughs> right. No, just the idea of some personality type systems yeah and you have a quiz to figure out what personality yeah. type you are the the quiz limits you especially if right. it's a multiple choice quiz you are limited to that personality type system um yeah right? and it's 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 one of those things where like the one i'm most familiar with is like myers-briggs for sure. example yep um and i leaving aside the question of whether that's a legitimate you know, system that asserts meaningful things, um, which is not a question I'm uninterested in. It's just one I don't want to take the rest of this podcast to, t- to discuss. Right. Leaving that aside, you do get, and I've, you know, I've seen it in many, many people I know personally, people who like figure out what their type is and then yep. it's like a tribal thing, right? Yes. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I do that because I'm a, you know, XQ Pi right. J. Well, um, you can even see it in... And it uh, becomes like an identity yep. rather than sort of a, a diagnostic. Yep, yep, absolutely. It, and it, it by being diagnosed, if I can put that in heavy air quotes, yeah. as one personality type or another, it changes how you behave. Yeah, yeah. It absolutely does. And that's kind of getting to this, too. This This whole idea of finding a patron is you are... This narrator is trying to find his identity. Right. And these other... People, these patrons, are people, but they are only useful to him insofar as they contribute to his identity. To his identity. Yeah. It's one thing that, that uh, an image that I've had in my head almost since I first read this passage is, like, if you take, like, a casino slot machine, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like, the idea where, you know, you pull the lever, you have your three rotating yep. dials, and then... Theoretically, you know, you stop it and it's like there's a cherry on one and a cherry on the next one, a cherry on the next yep. one, as opposed to like maybe you could, uh, whatever. Everyone knows how slot machines work. Anyway, right. the point I'm making is that like one of the first images that came to mind when I first read this passage was the idea that what these uh, these men, these patrons were doing and I, I do keep calling them men. It's because they are specifically delineated as men. Yep. Which, I'm going to toss this off here. We might not even get to it, but a feminist reading of this book would be fascinating. Um, really? Yeah. Just 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 as, like, because it's mostly men. Most it of, is. Most of this book is men, but similarly to the sort of colonialism and, and aboriginal... Um, absence here i think the absence of women is not like just sort of a default thing i think it in a certain sense may be very intentional i absolutely think it is in now the, in the conversation that just, we just to had, just to yeah. uh uh clarify doing something asinine intentionally can still be doing something asinine so i'm not saying he's right. not a jerk for doing this but i, no. I do think it's different from just something that sort of happens. No, but there's something there with the, the just the idea of what the female is yeah. in this novel. Because even in the passage that we read, there's discussion of the ideal woman, which is the woman we all think about. Right. Right? right. That's who we think about. And we meet an ideal woman later in the book. That's true. Though, she is the first woman in the book, and I want to say she doesn't come until like two-thirds of the way. Yep through the text. Yep. And the only other woman mentioned is this completely theoretical ideal woman and also the woman in the poem Yep. who the poem is not about. Right. Or at least is not like focused on describing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, She's just a feature in the plains, which ultimately is what this later woman is. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) But of course the plains might be all of reality. Right. So it's one of those things where it's either 
you're dismissing the idea of, of womanhood or womanness as what? something lesser. It's or you're making it the wellspring of all of reality. Sure, and, and both of those things could be problematic. Right. But... Well, it, it, and I think it is exactly both because here's the thing: when they talk about the ideal woman here, and then he meets this ideal woman. Yeah. The whole focus. It, she becomes the woman. This whoever this woman, capital W, is. Yeah. Is something utterly divine. Yeah. Something utterly unapproachable, untouchable, divine. Yeah. But the thing is, she is only useful to those who talk about her insofar as she can be possessed by them. Right. And that's exactly like it. It it it, it connects um, this person with the divine, this man with this woman. Everything is again going back to the solipsism idea. Mm-hmm. It, it's about possession. It's about power to an extent it's about um what matters to me as defined by me the only definitions that count are the ones that i give but even those are insufficient but i'm not gonna let anybody else know that right (laughs) yeah absolutely so anyway back to slot machines this was a digression from i would like it noted (laughs) Uh, um so my my uh my original thought and again like i've said like seven times now um, this goes back to the very first, like, even as I was reading this 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 uh, play script style passage for the first time, um, the image of, like, a slot machine with all three of its wheels spinning or whatever, right? And to me, that's these landowners. They're all spinning their wheels. They're just spitting yeah. out as much stuff from their brains as they can. And that's their method of, like, trying to figure out who they should become the patron for. It's kind of... And the of... idea that the the narrator then comes in, or whoever the artist that they have for, for the moment is, comes in, spews out his own stuff, and hopefully the there's artist says three cherries, and one of the guys is saying three cherries. Yep. And there's, yeah, it's, there's it's a match. It's kind of that whole, if you have an infinite number of monkeys on yes. typewriters for eternity, one of them is going to type Shakespeare. Right. So a a friend of mine, and this is pure, utter, inexcusable nitpicking, a friend of mine once did point out that you, it has to be a limited number of monkeys typing infinitely, because if it's an infinite number of monkeys and it's an infinite amount of time, they will produce the works of Shakespeare infinite, instantly. Yep. (laughs) But, yeah. Right. Um, anyway... Oh, gentle listener, did you hear that? That was us doing a half hour on Jorge Luis Borges' uh, Library of Babel that we did just <laughs> delete. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Good stuff. Um, One thing, so we talked about last time for sure, and also a little bit this time, about the whole, the absence of the natives, the absence yeah. of the aborigines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which, which, you know, it strikes me that you mentioned now the, the absence of woman, too. Yes, which here. I think so are like, probably paralleled. Absolutely, the absence of minorities in general. Yeah, here yeah. Being intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, go on. And, and, you know, partly, I think, from what I've read of Gerald Murnane, both in this and in um, Stream System, his book of short stories that get very autobiographical, and we talked last time about how I don't like to read autobiography onto fiction, but, like, in his short stories even more than in this, it's sometimes just as, like, you're forcing me to do this, Gerald. Mm-hmm. Um, you're forcing me, Gerald. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Come on, Gerald. Come on, Gerald. Stop making me autobiographize you. Anyway. Very good. Um, I think, like, in, in some of his fiction, he expresses fear of women and alienation Mm -hmm. from them so that and you know it makes me suspect that maybe this absence is intentional but it's also sort of like him saying yes i am a very good writer but there are certain things i can't approach except in negative space Mm -hmm. except in the absence of it and what i know about the absence of it and that both the australian natives and women themselves might be that again that's just me theorizing i could be very right. very wrong but anyway but, yeah. this is 
literally the opening words of the book, other than the... Um, ben Lerner's introduction. Ben Lerner's introduction and the planes. We have an epigraph. Yep. We had at length discovered a country ready for the immediate reception of civilized man. Quoted from Thomas Livingston Mitchell um, in Three Expeditions into the Interior of Eastern Australia. Yep. Um, which is the most acknowledgement of, or the most direct acknowledgement of colonization and of yep. um, the idea that there were people here before European white men. Because, again, if you focus back onto, like, if you uh, sort of do a um, close read of the passages that we read aloud at the beginning of this episode, very much white people. Yes. Right. Golden freckles on alabaster skin skin or whatever yeah objecting Um, to tan skin yeah yeah it's Mm -hmm. very white and so the most direct uh acknowledgement we get that australia is a colonized nation that is you know built on a history of colonialism that i from my knowledge of history is at least as sort of dirty and bloody as the colonization of you know, North America. Right. Um, the only direct acknowledgement we get of that is in the epigraph, which is both something that could make you miss it altogether and also making it one of the most important things in this book. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, the key word in this epigraph is civilized. Yep. Just the idea that, A, you're implying, A, Here's like a negative space and acknowledgement that there were people here before, but they're not civilized. Yep. And you're implying that the people who did come in were civilized. Well, if you read this epigraph just quickly, the impression you have of the country, the land that is being described is it's empty. Yes. Until you read that word civilized. Yes. Then you realize, no, there is something here already. Right. That civilized man is going to come in and ruin. Yes. Which it kind of almost makes this whole book about white guilt. Yeah. Just the idea that's, that's that like when the an... actual comes on top of the possible, it's yeah. the idea that the white colonization has destroyed things that were there already. Yeah. And that's like an entire... Like, if I was back in grad school and I was reading this book for a class, you know, and there were like five of us doing, like, essays on this book for a class, and we were divvying it up somehow. Sure. Or doing a presentation about this book or something. Right. Um, It would be, like, one of us would take the feminist approach, one of us would take, you know, solipsism or something like that, and one of us would definitely take white guilt. Like, one of us would just read this whole book um, about that. Yes. And, like... I ain't even mad. I'm not saying it's illegitimate. I'm just saying it's it's what would it's happen. It's something and you it's, could do. Yeah, it's there. Absolutely. Like it's yep. you could do an entire ten to fifteen page like graduate level paper yep. on the like white guilt in the negative space of this novel, and or maybe it, white guilt is even a bad term for it. Sure, sure, something like it though. Yeah, but co- like colonialism, colonization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At yeah. the same time, though, you could also just read this and here. I'm gonna say what what I wrote on the title page of this uh-huh. under the plains. Gerald Murnane, in parentheses, I wrote a novel? Question <laughs> mark. A philosophy? Question uh-huh. mark. An icebreaker? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> uh, yeah. With the 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 parentheses in parentheses there of page 133, which is where he's talking about seeing this daughter of the landowner and uh, coming up with the idea of publishing something, uh, a short work oh, that's not that the, she would the movie, eventually putting find. It, hiding it on the bookshelf so that this woman would find it yes. so that they could start a conversation. So my is this idea there is, talks... is, is this book... Exactly that. Yeah. Are you trying to start a conversation with somebody here? Yeah. Do you is... have some specific person in mind that you want to have a conversation with, and so you've hidden this book out there, <laughs> even if it's with FC, oh. that you want to talk to somebody here, and this is this is your icebreaker, this is your opener. Yeah, I was going to mention FC, the future creature that I mentioned last episode, Yeah. who Gerald Bernane perhaps is writing all of his works for. Mm-hmm. Um, the object of his love. 
it's interesting. There, one of one of the gr- the short stories I enjoyed the most in Stream System is actually about a like writer's retreat workshop, whose whole premise is that none of the writers talk to each other. So it's like one of these typical writers' retreats where you go to a mm-hmm. beautiful place with a big house for a whole weekend and you all like write together and share work, but none of the writers are allowed to talk to each other except through their fiction. Wow. And you're not, they're not allowed to like talk directly to each other. Um, and I'm, I'm brutally like oversimplifying this short story. Right. But, um, basically the, the implication from both the very beginning and the very end of the story is that there's like, one particular female writer at this workshop that Gerald Bernane is in fact writing this whole story too, but he's not allowed to like right. do that. Right. Um, oh, I want to do this retreat now. I know, right? <laughs> but it's like brutal in in the story because like if you get found out or you or you you know break this this rule where like you talk to someone or you talk too directly to them in your short story, you have to leave. You have to pack your bags and go. It's like a week-long retreat, but some people are going on, like, day two and three and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, you're supposed to self-report, too, like, if you commit thought crime. But if you don't, you'll probably get found out, and then you will be sent packing. Yep, yep, of course. So, oh, it's just... That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I do want to do the retreat... Partly just to see if I can. Yep, yep. It's a challenge to myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's very good. That we is... might have to do, we might have to do some more, like maybe even some short story specials or something on Gerald Murnane in the sure. future. I do love this man, even though he's very upsetting. He's clearly. I mean, it's it's basically a marriage. <laughs> we're, already, we're already married to Gerald. You Murnane. and I and Gerald Murnane are married exactly. all to each other. Yep, exactly. Well, that's, that's the moral of this story. Sadly, not the most disturbing thing that's been said so far. <laughs> um, so we're getting close to the end. You do have to punish. I have to punish punish you. me, Daddy. Um, Whoa. Well, you know. Uh, but there are just one or two things I want to bring up yes. specifically about Gerald Bernane. One of them being a line that he wrote in one of the short stories that I read in Stream System, and I can't remember what it, like, I, I can't remember the specific word okay. yet, but basically, so Gerald Bernane, something that comes up in several of his short stories is that he... From the short story, the evidence in the short stories, which again is fiction, so it's not super trustworthy. Right. It's that he was raised Catholic. Oh, okay. Um, but abandoned the faith at a certain point. Okay. However, there is one line in one of his short stories where he says, I do not write to portray the real world. I write to convince myself that there is a world beyond this one. Interesting. Yeah. And... I, like I say, I think I brutally mangled it in the paraphrase, but that's the sense of it. Right. What do you think of that based on this novel? Um, I am not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm further interested. Right. Um, but it does seem to me that that is exactly the quest of the narrator in this book. Yeah. Which, it, we've kind of talked about this narrator in a little bit of... Um, villainous terminology yeah which uh, i don't think is i don't think that's wrong. out of place yeah um but i i do also think that it is um forgive this blasphemy a little autobiographical uh-huh. as well right um that uh well that was the only other thing i was going to bring up there's a passage towards the end of this book and i've tried and failed to find it tonight sure but he mentions several things about Maybe if you were such and so an artist, you would do certain these certain things. One of them being a real specific thing about like coming up with an extremely elaborate game about racehorses. Yes. So in this New York Times article that I referenced at the beginning of the last episode, uh-huh. um, it the the author of that article mentions that much of Gerald Bernane's time these days 
he has taken up with playing this game he's invented about, like, he has a whole, like, fantasy world where he simulates race, like, horse races. Mm -hmm. And he has, like, a randomized system based, I want to say, on books somehow. I don't remember how it works exactly. I don't know that anybody does Mm -hmm. um, other than Gerald Murnane. But it is a (laughs) randomized system where he, he invents fantasy lands to host his fantasy horse races and um like a lot of his writing time and creative time is taken up basically playing this game with himself sure um and it's it's talked about as sort of perhaps a wellspring of his other creativity mm-hmm. but it's also this very solipsistic thing in yeah. the sense that it's like a game only he understands, only he cares about, and yep. it has stakes only for him. And it comprises an entire world. Yes, yes, <laughs> that he's like the god of. Yep. Except, in the sense that it's randomized, he's There's, almost not even the yeah, god of exact, it. Yeah, exactly. It's a world that he's created that he controls, but also he doesn't. Yes, absolutely. So, that's fascinating. Yeah. I want to mention briefly, I don't want to talk about this anymore, but uh, the fact... I don't want to talk about this book anymore. Uh, uh, that uh, one facet that we didn't talk about and I was thinking about bringing up, but decided not to, that um, this is another book about invisibility. Oh, shoot. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk about that, but also it's very, very correct and pertinent. Yep, you're And welcome. we could do an episode about it, but we won't. Nope. So, ready for your punishment? Yeah, I am. Alright, close your eyes. Okay. Alright, I'm gonna... I don't like you getting up right now. Nope, I'm getting up. Close your eyes. I don't like that. And I want you to, at any point, tell me to stop. Stop. Take this book. I was randomly scrolling over your bookshelves, and I selected a random book. Okay. I want you to turn to the first page, find the first paragraph. Should should we? Yeah. Tell what book book we're we're looking at. This is Other Kingdoms by Richard Matheson. All right. Um, Richard Matheson wrote. I forget what the story is called, but it got turned into that zombie movie with Will Smith. Oh, uh, Zombieland. No. That's not... No, I Am Legend. Yes, I Am Legend. That one. And a couple other zombie movies from the same story support. Anyway, Matheson is a fairly famous uh, science fiction author, mostly famous for his works getting turned into famous movies. I think he wrote the work that inspired The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh. But I'm not positive about Interesting. That. Should I go to the introduction or the no, first No, the first story? paragraph of the, of the thing. Yep. Okay. All right. So now what I want you to do... Um, we had this, uh, for our oral interpretation class in college, you weren't in that class, uh, we, one of the textbooks that we read was by, I think Richard was his first name, Lesak. Okay. And one thing that Lesak did for pronunciation, proper pronunciation, for what pronunciation, you take your thumb, put it inside your mouth, press it up to your, the roof of your mouth, and then your forefingers over the bridge of your nose, and... I want you to read the first paragraph with your hand in said position. Um, point of order. Yep. Can I not be punished again if I break one of the rules? (laughs) Just for this instance? Why? Because I have a comment I want to make, but I don't want to get punished again. Mm. No, I think once the punishments commence, the rules are defunct. Okay. In that case, I'm going to say I've had half a bottle of scotch now. Well, I split (laughs) it with you. Right. So, quarter, I guess. And what I'm saying is, if this makes me vomit, I'm going to be very mad at you. <laughs> well, don't tickle your uvula. Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, so the thumb on the roof of the mouth. Yep, and then your fing- your other four fingers on the bridge of your nose. Okay, got it. And read the first paragraph in said position. I was born in Brooklyn, New York on February 20th, 1900. <laughs> the son of Captain Bradford Smith White. U.S.N. and Martha Justine Hollenbeck. I have one sister, Veronica, younger than I, who died the same year when these strange incidents began. And all that David Copperfield crap. And all that David Copperfield (laughs) crap. Thank you. Um, I was going to say that I feel that if that... 
paragraph had had more S's in it, I would have felt worse about my <laughs> enunciation. Oh, but that was very good. Very I didn't good. feel I'm great good. about it, but I did also feel a little bit like I was Bullwinkle J. Moose, and that made me feel slightly better. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you for that well, punishment. Well, you have been well and thoroughly punished. I didn't vomit either, so yeah, that's you did. good. Good job. Thank you. Um, so, gentle listener... Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for suffering with me through my humiliation. Uh, how do I scroll down? Oh, I don't know. Down. Whatever. We need to um, rate the book. Some finishing stuff. Okay, do we rate the book now? We do we rate, rate the, the book, book now, now. But not the scotch. Not the scotch. Okay. Ratings. Michael, on a scale from by... Borrow or forget about it, what would you rate The Plains by Gerald Murnane? Buy it. And I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like, once again, you sort of uh, harmonizing thematically with the book and not... not uh... I don't want to tell you. I'm just in a lover's spat with my spouse, Gerald Murnane, so... Okay, well... Um, That's why. <laughs> gentle listener, I agree. I'm going to rate this book Buy It. And I'm not going to tell you because now I'm in a lover's spat with Michael. <laughs> it's perfect. But we do we do agree. Buy it. Um, I read this book in an evening, and I want to read it three more times. And honestly, that's that's one of the reasons I'm going to say buy it. I'm going to go back on what I said initially, and you can't call me out on it because I'm announcing it. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I did try to, to trick you just now into doing this, but um, here we are. This book is extremely short. Yeah. You can read it three or four times in a week. Yeah. And, in fact, that might be a good idea. Yeah. It might be a horrible idea because you might go insane. In sort of a solipsistic... Uh, you, you might become united negative with... Negative space. You might become united with Cthulhu after doing that. Or the universe. Or the universe. Which is obviously both the same thing. It's the same thing, yep. Um, but, yeah, you could do that. It's short and so profound in yeah. such a short space that, yeah... Again, I I I'm going to expand because Michael did, and now I'm not mad at him anymore. Um, <laughs> but like, someone some someone I read a while ago described a good cocktail as you're halfway through it and you already want another one. And hmm. I got halfway through this book and I already wanted to be rereading it. Yeah. Um. Then that's that's you know become my vocabulary for describing it like truly stupendous book and this one or is it you're halfway through your wife and you already want another one i'm going to not <laughs> confirm any of what you just said because i feel like i'd get in trouble <laughs> um and i'm gonna let you just swim in that uh cesspit you with your eyes open dove into <laughs> by your own choice yeah um i am going to say well, this also, is the narrative of two white men, so. So yeah, we we are we are the suspect. Yep. <laughs> um, I am going to say also, besides everything Michael and I both just said about why you should buy it, um, Gerald Murnane is not super like widely and thoroughly published no. in the U.S. at this time. Yeah. Um, the Planes and Stream System, which was only published last year, were like the two most easily available books. And basically, this article I read about Murnane said, like, if you want him, buy these two, because, like, those are the only ones you can get. Um, I think he might be starting to open up in the U.S. Uh, market more, but, like, if this is someone that you want to see, this is, like, a very valid person to buy rather than, yeah. you know, borrow or... or rent or whatever right um if you you know obviously if you can do it um so yeah for all those reasons buy it buy it buy it yep uh gerald bernane if you're listening we do love you even mm -hmm. if we hate you <laughs> but mostly but mostly we love you mostly we love you so that said thank you for listening um please feel free to read along with all of our books give us your feedback um Next month, we are, or next episode, we are uh, reading Soulless by Gail Carriger. Mm -hmm. um, 
so feel free to read along with that. Give us your feedback in the tapestryradio.org contact section. Um, put Scotch Talk in the subject line so we know what it is. Um, do the thing so we know what the thing is. Yep. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter, we are at Room with Scotch. Um, we have the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook, our exclusive club that we will almost certainly let you into unless you're not a human or are a Nazi. There you go. Uh, we will also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well. We don't promise... We don't condone... Well, except we now do condone plagiarism. We do condone, condone plagiarism. Only because we think it's funny, and mm-hmm. if you decide to plagiarize, you deserve the consequences. Consequences. I'm going with that pronunciation now. Yeah, so plagiarize, feel free. Just don't blame us when you go to jail for it. Mm-hmm. Go to our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form, tell us what your homework was. We'll do it for you. It'll be bad, but we'll do it. Yep. If you like this podcast, you can check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Uh, shows like Intermission, our audio drama podcast, uh, Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United Tabletop RPG Real Play podcast. Good enough. Is it? Did <laughs> I not do it all? You, you just got two words out of order. <sighs> anyway... Um, I'm going to stop free free soloing this one. Uh, also listen to Here's Johnny, our, uh, horror, horror games and review or games and films review podcast. There you go. Thank you. It's a, it's good if you like horror films or games at all. Read my webcomic Pin Porter Girl Detective at pinporterdetective.com if you like fairy tales, noir fiction, uh, comics, uh, there should be something for you, um, there. Yep. And then, if you like us, if you like this podcast, please rate us, review us. We don't do any kind of real paid advertising, so word of mouth and reviews on places like Apple Podcasts, um, Stitcher, Google, Google Play, Play, that one. Um, reviews on places like that are really, like, the best promotion for us that there is, so yeah. please rate and review us. Only five stars, all others need not apply. You don't need to do more than five. Five is yeah, good. Yeah, five is good. We're, we're humble. <laughs> um, and, uh, until next time, just remember, it's our podcast, and you'll cry if we want to. <laughs> yep. Okay, <laughs> we love you, bye-bye. Bye!
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects. Of oblivion. Of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.